Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We're in Acts chapter 9. We'll be actually jumping around a bit, but um, let me read Acts 9, 1 through 9, and then we will go from there. In Acts 9, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letter, letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Well, we're coming to a very major pivot in the book of Acts. Up to now, the primary focus has been on the church in the uh, the city of Jerusalem. Initially, the church was seen as some sort of a subset of Judaism. So you, you have the groups called the group called the Pharisees, the group called the Sadducees, the Zealots. There's also the Essenes, and now they have these people at this point who are called the way. That's how they are known, as their people of the way. Now, in chapters 4 through 7 of Acts, we saw that patience quickly wore out regarding those people who were of the way because of the message centered fully on Jesus. They kept on saying over and over again that Jesus was the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, that he was God in human flesh, that he was the one who came to save them from sin and the wrath that comes with sin. He was murdered by them, and yet he rose again and is returning. This was his message, very simple message. And at first it was nice. They were very exciting. Things are happening in Jerusalem. People are getting healed. There's miracles, all kinds of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with these people. They seem to be genuine people, but they wouldn't shut up about Jesus. And that after a while, that began to press them. And it's like, you know what? This is a concern. You can almost hear it today. These guys are, I think this is a cult. It's a little off. And so it all creates tension. Many are coming to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so now power structures are beginning to be threatened. As if Jesus is the risen Lord, if he is the promised Messiah, 
then he is the one to whom we owe our allegiance, not to the Sadducees, not to the Sanhedrin, which is the religious council. Not any of those things matter anymore. What matters is that Jesus is the Messiah. And as a result now, apostles begin to be jailed and beaten and threatened, but they keep on preaching about Jesus. Stephen, one of the six, a godly man, not only was an official minister of the church, but he also was a gifted preacher, and he also was preaching and preaching. Though he was not an apostle, that was his giftedness. And he's ultimately taken captive because of what he's saying. He wasn't doing anything wrong, but they were offended by what he was saying. And so he ended up being taken captive, dragged outside, stoned to death for blasphemy. And now where we're at is that the church is under full-scale attack. There is, in fact, a little verse in verse 7 that it's easy to miss, but it's the way Luke likes to write, where he'll introduce a key individual a few chapters earlier and then just make a simple comment and then pick him up in detail later on. That's what you have here. In chapter 7, it says that all of those, the witnesses were who were going to actively throw stones at uh, Saul and, I mean, Stephen and kill him, they all took off their cloaks so they could have freedom of movement, and they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man who was there, and his name was Saul. Saul was there not to raise protests, not to try to defend the honor of Stephan or anything else. He was there because he flat out agreed with what was going on. Kill this man. Stone him. And in that moment of murder, so many in the church at that time, you can understand, began to fear and flee. It was now open season on anyone who claimed to follow Jesus Christ, but most Importantly, as the persecution arose and as the people fled for their life, what they didn't leave behind was the gospel. It says that as they fled, they fled with the word of God on their lips. And with that, the gospel began to finally go outward from Jerusalem and now into the surrounding areas. So the church was actually, get this, early on and get it stuck in your brain so it will help you, that the church was actually being sent out into the broader world, away from Jerusalem, and the way God was doing it was through persecution. It wasn't that they were preaching the word of God in spite of the persecutions, because of that, that they went out and continued to preach. And so they're now in Judea, Samaria, and ultimately they'll end up into the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see that still unfolding today, which is why missions exist. Well, but at this point, the gospel's firmly established in Judea. We just read a, sh- a few weeks ago about the impact of the gospel in Samaria. And now people are coming to faith. You, you remember Simon's the magi- Simon the magician and his false con- conversion, but many in Samaria were saved, so much so that the apostles came down to verify it. So now it's time to go outward. So now the, the stage is set by God, and don't miss this, that through persecution that God determined through hatred that he would then bring the saving gospel to the people of the Gentiles. And that's you and I. Unless you know you're Jewish, you're a Gentile. 
So how? How is that going to happen? By with whom? Whom has who has God chosen to bring this and to do this great work? Because they're going out of their comfort zone. They're going to go into a world of people and cultures and languages and belief systems and everything else that is totally foreign to a faithful good Jew. How is the gospel going to go out there? Well, it started with the persecution. And now it's going to develop a leader. And that person is Paul, or right now in our story, it's Saul. And so what I want to do is introduce you to the person Saul. You know him as Paul and, and make some then initial comments on our passage. And Lord willing, when I come back uh, to preach in two weeks, that we will be able to finish up the rest of this story of Paul's conversion. If you're going to understand him, you have to understand certain things that we have given to us in the Bible about him. He was known as Paul of Tarsus. Means nothing for you. I bet you you couldn't find it on the map um, unless you had an actual Bible, times of Bible. But Tarsus was a very important place. Saul was actually brought up and lived in Jerusalem, but he returned to his home of, of Tarsus when he was converted. We read about that in chapter 9, verse 30 of Acts. He was doubtless proud of his linkage to Tarsus. It was a great city. It was a university city. It was actually the center of government, of banking, of commerce. It wasn't just some little hole in the wall. It would be a New York City, a Chicago. As a result of that, Paul was very well acquainted with the high culture of of paganism, all of the different ways that that functioned, and all of the rites, and all of the temples, and all of the gods, and all of the philosophy, and all the rhetoric, and everything else. This was just part of what he walked and breathed in. I remember when I lived in Idaho, and I grew up in my significant uh, growing up days of starting in seventh grade, we ended up in... um, Idaho, in the second biggest city of Idaho, 34,000 people, that's, that's the second biggest city. You know, you get to know everybody, and, and there's just a way of doing things. There's a rhythm of life and what you do for fun and, and everything else. It's just small-town living. And then I was, had an opportunity to move to Houston, Texas, to learn to be a baker. And so I packed up and moved down to Houston. I had never been on a freeway in my life. I discovered there's exit-only lanes. And, and that when you are in that lane that you don't have a choice, you only can exit. And when you exit, you can end up in a ghetto, bad area that you don't know how to get out of. And you don't have GPS back then. And you don't got a map of this. And now you're just this dumb farm boy wandering through a big city of Dallas, scared. And for the longest time, living in Houston was hard because it was a culture I wasn't used to. Everything was faster, bigger. Same thing when we moved then to L.A. And then going from L.A. to here, and all of a sudden we have to slow back down. We're we're used to going that lightning-fast speed of L.A. just the way L.A. is. And then you come into Kenosha, and you're like, whoa, we're going to slow down. But in all of that, you have to learn how to shift and, and, and relate to these cultures, and, and it can be quite shocking to you. 
Well, Paul was used to this kind of a culture. He could effortlessly step into any pagan city where all sorts of weird, strange sexual acts, all in the name of worship and all kinds of weird-looking people doing weird-looking things, and they're doing all kinds of religious practices, and there's just this life called the city of Tarsus, and he would have known what was going on. He wouldn't have been overwhelmed. One of the things I remember on we we would go to trips into Africa, and you know I've traveled quite a few different countries over the years. And when I'm with people, it's interesting to watch them handle culture shock. In fact, one of them I was with you, and you may even think of a couple of the guys on our trip, uh, Tony, that that they reacted poorly in it. It, it bothered them. I actually had to talk one guy down off of the ledge, so to speak. He he was just overwhelmed. He was not used to this kind of poverty. He was not used to this kind of hardship and difficulty that was called Cameroon, Africa. He wasn't ready for all of the things that go on in a pagan world. And there's just people that can get overwhelmed, but that's not Paul. Paul was a man of Tarsus, a big city guy, a well-trained guy, a guy who's used to seeing it all, and so he's not distracted by it. Remember when we first started going across that bri- that bridge in Douala, and we're looking at people, and they're carrying carpets on their heads, they're carrying rebar on their head. They, if they can stick it on their head, they're carrying it, and we're just, our heads are going back and forth because everything is just before us. After I'd been there four times, I didn't look at any of them. It was just part of what it was. It was just called Cameroon. It has the smell, it has the look, it has all of those things. Paul was that way. And it would aid him, especially in his time in Athens. Tarsus was a place where Cicero, the famous statesman and philosopher and scholar, was governor of it in the mid-50s B.C. You may have heard of Cicero. How about Mark Antony? This is where he and Cleopatra met. Tarsus was the native city of many Stoic philosophers. And that's interesting because Paul had to deal with them specifically in Acts 17 and some of their belief systems that a Stoic would have. In fact, it was such an incredible city of learning that it was said to have surpassed even Athens and Alexandria in Egypt as for learning. Those were your two centers of the Western world, of of all things learned and all knowledge, and yet Tarsus had surpassed them. Now, that being a citizen of Tarsus was helpful. It was good. There There was, though, another citizenship that he enjoyed even more through his life, Paul, we now want to think about as the citizen of Rome. And and we won't go there because all it does is it just says that he was a citizen. But in Acts 16 and Acts 22, it says that he was born a Roman citizen. In fact, in one of those passages, I think it's chapter 22 one, he's actually talking to a guy who bought his citizenship. He's like, how did you become a Roman citizen? And the guy said, I paid for it. He's like, I was a Roman citizen by birth, which is the best kind of citizenship to have. That means his father was a Roman citizen because you can't do it through your mother. But we don't have any information about his life as a citizen of Rome. We don't know anything really about him as, a, uh, as an unbeliever, about his family, his upbringing in that way. 
And I actually think that's noteworthy because when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, everything changes. I don't think we oftentimes believe it like we need to, but everything should change. You're no longer identified because your dad was a Roman citizen. That's not how you define yourself. Some, some people you know, are they still try to define themselves about that football game where they played really good or that track or that other event that they did, and that's what they remember, and that's their identity, and they keep talking about that. Those things cannot ultimately identify you once you come to faith. It's Christ. And that's why I think the Bible is devoid of much of this information because Paul says it doesn't matter. I'm his slave. He's my Lord. I belong to a different family now, God's family. And that oftentimes, some of you know this painfully well, that when you become part of God's family, your earthly family, if they don't believe as well, they can become quite difficult to be with because they think you're very difficult to be with. Why? Because you have the word of God on your lips and you want them to understand and know and trust and believe. And they're like, would you shut up already? And so by coming to faith, Saul's credentials and heritage are not that important. He doesn't really care that much. What's important is that he now belongs to God. And if you didn't know, for every believer in this room, it's the same for you. No matter what everyone else is saying about you, trying to lock you in or define you, the only thing that really defines you is that Christ is your Lord and he has borne your sin away and you're free. Now, that doesn't mean he won't talk about his background, but every time Paul talks about his background, it's always to bring it down, not to lift it up. Whenever he speaks of himself, it's always to not define himself by those things anymore, that this is what I was, but now I'm this. With that, go over to Philippians. Keep your finger there because we're going to definitely come back. But in Philippians chapter 3, you get to see another aspect of Paul. You saw him as Paul of Tarsus. You have him, Paul, the Roman citizen. But now let's talk about Paul, the Pharisee. Now we're drilling into what really makes this man tick and why we find him doing what he's doing in Acts 9. In Philippians 3, verse 4, it says, he's telling the people, hey, don't put confidence in the externals, the flesh. the things you accomplish. And then he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. So he says, hey, you don't want to do that, but if you want to do it, we we can share and trade and compare our credentials, okay? So just in case... Even with you, you're, you're thinking, hey, I, I have these things. I have these markers. And he's like, great, you want to compare? We can compare. He's like, if anyone should have confidence in what he's done, I far more. Why? Because I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was one of the favored tribes. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he, he went above and beyond what it took. As to the law, he says, I was a Pharisee. Then notice this little phrase, as to zeal, how zealous was I for God? A persecutor of the church. That's how zealous I was. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. And then he says, but whatever I've gained through all of those things, I count now as loss for the sake of Christ. He's like, they can't define me. 
You want to play that game. We can play that game, but you're not going to win that game. He's like, dude, did you kill anybody for the name of Yahweh? Did you put anybody in prison? Did you do any? No, no, I did. He's like, and none of it matters. None of it is what ma- is the issue. What matters is that I have Christ, and I count everything else as loss. Now, that zeal that he talks about is a strong emotion, but that zeal is more than just an emotion. This zeal actually drove his decision to persecute the church. If you have, can, turn to Rome, Romans 10, verses 1 and 2. Because he talks about this understanding of the Jewish heart when he says this. He says in chapter one, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, his fellow Jews, is their salvation. What is his burden? What does he want? When, when he prays for his fellow Jews, is he saying, hey, I pray that they get the house. Hey, I pray they, uh, that tumor goes away. Hey, I pray that they get that pay raise. Hey, whatever. No, he, he's got one thing and one thing only. I pray for their salvation. Why is it? Why is he so narrow? Because after that, everything else matters. But until you have that, none of it matters. It's that simple for you too. If you don't have Christ, you can go and do whatever it is you you want to do. I can't stop you. I won't stop you. Chase whatever dream you want. It won't matter. In the end, it will always end up as a wasted life. The only thing he cares about with his people is that they be saved. Why? Why? Notice verse 2. He gives a reason. For this reason, I bear witness that they have, here's that word again, zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. So this zeal that they have, his people, his, his fellow Israelites, he sees them, they're zealous. Man, they really love God. They really are hot for him. They're, they're trying to do all these things right. He's like, but they don't understand the truth and so their zeal is being spent on everything but what matters. Paul talks about this zeal in his own life. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. So he didn't just sort of do it. He went beyond what was necessary. I tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. So he's like, you get all the other guys, and I was doing better than even them. Why? Being extremely more zealous for my ancestral traditions. He's like, I tried to destroy the church because I was so zealous. The same thing that I look at my other brothers and sisters as Israelites, and I pray for their salvation. Why? Because they have that same zeal, but it's not built on the right foundation. What I want you to understand is zealousness defined the life of Paul as a Pharisee. It defined his life in his world before his conversion. And I would argue that the zeal never ended. It just got finally fixed in the right place. To reward Romans 10.1, now it's not a zealousness not according to knowledge, but now it's a zeal in accordance to knowledge. He knows what, what he should burn hot for. 
But we're not here yet because in Romans 9, first we have a guy who is burning with zeal for all the wrong reasons. And so that actually helps us. For some of you, you may know this. Others, this may be new. I hope it will be interesting. This reference over and over again to the idea of zealousness helps us know what kind of Pharisee he was. Because as you know, every time you do something, you decide, oh, I want to be a baseball player. Okay, great. You can be a baseball player. But once you get into baseball, then you discover that it gets broken down into subcategories, right? And you got the good baseball players and the really sad ones. And then you got the specialty guys and this and that. Well, in the world of the Pharisees, it's the same thing. I want to be a Pharisee. That's great. But then you start to find out that there's types of Pharisees. And what he was is he most likely belonged to the group known as the followers of Shammai or Shammaiites. Shammai was a rabbi and a, a famous Pharisee. And in the time uh, before Paul, the world of the Pharisees, which were the religious, some of the religious people for, of, of Judaism, very, very religious, there came a split where they went two separate ways, two different thoughts. You either followed the teacher named as Hillel or Shammai, two famous rabbis. Now, when if you were a follower of Hillel, you were more lenient. You were more liberal. Shammai was known to be the strict one, the fundamentalist. The followers of each group would then discuss, argue all points of uh, theology from those two positions. But you really followed after this guy or this guy. So an example of the followers of Hillel was a famous uh, rabbi and Pharisee named Gamaliel. And you read about him in uh, Acts chapter 5. That's the guy who spoke up with the apostles and they're thinking about, hey, maybe we should kill him. Maybe we should put him in prison. And, and Gamaliel's the guy who showed his how he was influenced by the former rabbi Hillel, who was the lenient one. He's like, whoa, whoa, slow down, guys. Basically, what he says is slow down. We've seen time after time people rise up thinking they're sent by God and they all fail. He's like, if this is of God, there is nothing we can do to stop it. But if it's not of God, if we just leave it alone, it will die out by itself. In other words, let's just show lenience. Let's make some room and it'll work itself out. Now, Hillel's more liberal, lenient position ultimately became the preeminent view within Judaism. But during the time of Paul, it was still a lot of controversy going on about it, a lot of public and private debate. And that's the world that Paul was raised in. This kind of stuff was going back and forth. And as a Pharisee, he was involved in those discussions. Some of you have never maybe seen it. But you, it's, I think of my days in the seminary when I was attending seminary. And, and when you're in there, weird things happen to you because you start to lose sight of the bigger world. And all that really matters is these debates about a single tiny part of theology. And you'll see guys out in the uh, common area and they'll be debating with each other and struggling to fight and for their position. Well, that's what Paul lived. That was his whole world, thinking that way. So he was raised with hot tempers and the fierce party line. But for Paul, these Hillelites had compromised. 
They were making room for the Gentiles. And he's like, no, we can't. Not if you're zealous for the glory of God. So these two positions between Hillel and Shammai, they actually affected every Jew in Israel. The Hillelites, would, and, and if you followed after those rabbis, you would hear, hey, calm down, be content. It's okay if the unbelieving Gentile is here as long as you're allowed to practice religion. By the way, it's going on in America they're not followers of Hillel or Shammai, but you hear pastors and churches, look, relax, make room. We're still free to worship. Let's not get too hot and bothered. Well, if you're the Shammaiites, you'd say, no. The Shammaiites would be your Christian nationalist post-millennialist today in Twitter. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But they're flaming everybody. This is wrong. We need a Christian nation. We need to rise up. We need to this. We need to that. And that would be the Shammai. They would be saying, look, there is only one God, the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these rank unbelievers have come in and they've taken over the land. Shake them off, O God. And so zeal for the Shammaiites would mean the same thing as jihad in the Muslim world. If you were zealous as a Pharisee, that meant you would do holy war. So much so that in Acts 22.3, Paul says that he had been educated under Gamaliel, so he was certainly influenced by the teachings of Hillel, the more kind and gentler. He just obviously did not accept it because no Hillelite would have sat there and been breathing out threats of murder and prison for Christians, they would have said, just relax and calm down. So he was aware of these things. He was taught those, but he ultimately went with the more strict one. Pretty typical of young people. We, we, we just got to get it done. And as you get older, you realize you can calm down a little bit. Now, the thinking behind all this is how the typical Jew understood the Bible. God chose them out of all of humanity. He's given them a covenant. He's given them the word, the law, the prophets. The purpose of this, they understood, was that they would become a light to the other world, uh, to the world, to the Gentiles who don't know God. But they also had disobeyed, and God had promised them if they disobeyed that they would be under the hand and the oppression of the Gentiles, and that's what's happening. So they know they, they have done some bad things, and that God is punishing them because the Romans run Israel. But they're looking for the day that the Old Testament promises that where God will visit his people and that he will make all things right. A golden age where all those filthy pagans are crushed. And they keep holding to that. They're waiting for the day the Messiah comes. And now these dumb, stupid people called people of the way are saying that Jesus did come. He was the Messiah and they're messing things up, and we need to kill them because they don't know what they're talking about. And so in Isaiah 52, if you have time, you flip over there, but keep your finger in Acts. There was this promise that one day Yahweh would reign. So in Isaiah 52, 6 through 10, listen. He says, therefore my people shall know my name, Therefore, in that day, the day when Messiah reigns, 
I am the one who is speaking, here I am. And so he says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. He's like glorious for those people. He says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up their voices. They shout together for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Israel or Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. Why? So that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. That's a very passage Paul actually references in Romans 10 as to why he's burdened and prays for his countrymen for their conversion. Why? Because they don't see Jesus as Lord, but how wonderful it is to be that person that brings the gospel to dying people. And if you followed Shammai, you didn't wait passively for that. It wasn't you stay faithful and wait for God's return. No, for the, that would be a halal position. Look, your job is not to bring God back. Your job is to be faithful where you're at. That's a halal's position. Shammai's position is, and it's your job to get him to come back. It's your job to clean up this thing. It's your job to kill all these people, bring them under your, your power and authority, and God will return. That's your job. And so that's what Paul got bought into. He's like, these guys are saying things that we can't accept. We got to go after them. Let's go. And you see this again happening in that whole Christian nationalism kind of post-millennial thinking right now that is all over the place on the web. They don't like the, the direction of our country, which I agree, and they, they're concerned with it. And so they're thinking we need to lock and load, we need to buy more ammo, we need to get some more survival packages and everything else because this can't go on. And you have, have the many Christians who are pushing for this kind of, we have to take action. That's a Shammai kind of position. That would be that kind of zeal. Well, that was Paul's zeal when he was still named Paul. And so we come now to Acts 9. Saul was a man who sought to magnify God's name, even defend the honor of that name. And that zealousness for God did not end at his conversion. It just got clarified. So now we can see Paul, or Saul, if you will, as the Christian. So we saw him as of Tarsus. We see him as the one who is the Roman citizen. We see him as a Pharisee. We see what kind of a Pharisee now. Let's see him as the Christian. Now remember, in Romans 10.2, his burden for the Israelites was that they have a zeal but without knowledge. They're very zealous. That zeal, that burning was for the reputation and person of God. Unfortunately, it was all built on the wrong belief. And that is who Paul was in Acts 9. He had no knowledge. He was burning with this zeal. He had this rage against those followers of Jesus Christ, and he's going to put an end to it all. He's going to deal with this. We're going to deal with all of it, and it's all based off of errant belief. He believes that this man, Jesus, died, and that's it. And he died in a shameful way, and we should not make him anything other than that, a curse. 
And so now we're in Acts 9, and, and Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he goes to the high priest, and he's like, look, we got to get this taken care of. Uh, I need permission. Can you get me the letters that will make this official, that I can go around wherever I need to and arrest these people, because this has to end. This is out of control. And he got them. And so he'd say, heads off. He knows that they're going to Damascus. Why? Well, we'll talk about it in a second. But he knows there's a lot of synagogues there, and it's it's safe distance away from Jerusalem, and they're going to go there first. That's one of the safe spots for them to go. I'm going to go there, and I will root them out. I will find them, bring them back. I don't care if they're man or woman. I'll drag them back, and we will deal with these. Well, Damascus was a city of about 150,000. It was a six-day walk from Jerusalem. And it was when he was close to Damascus that he encounters the risen Lord. It says, as he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And then this little phrase, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. Falling to the ground. When the light comes and when he is confronted with the person of Jesus in this situation, that word falling literally means to collapse, to be undone. Falling into ruins. Have you, any of you, I don't want to sound strange, but perhaps you've seen a video of a person who just has, uh, there's this whole hashtag called died suddenly on Twitter, and it just shows people who are right in the middle of Day-to-day stuff, they're at a grocery store, they're up on the stage, they're doing whatever, and all of a sudden, they a little grunt, and they just drop like a sack of potatoes. I remember the first time I saw a guy die, actually die. You know, you see it on TV, and you think, oh, I got I got it. And I, as a cop, when I saw a guy die, I just like, wow, you just are done. There's nothing neat about it, heroic about it. It's just violent. You're standing, and all of a sudden, you just collapse. And that's what happened to him. Paul is... Mad. Saul is ready to go do some killing. He is jacking up his, his energy, his emotions, all that. He's ready to go. And then all of a sudden, in one simple moment, a light shines on him that's so bright that he collapses. Notice the words of Christ in verses 4 and 5. Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting me. Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So twice he says that. He wants him to know, I'm the guy you're messing with. I'm the one you're persecuting. I'm the one that you're doing these things to. And in that, you see the absolute close connection between the Lord and the church. And I would say that it's not easily separated, that relationship. In fact, I would argue it's impossible to separate it. Now listen to me, because I will say something that may bother you, but it's, it's intent, intended to make you think. As an aside, what, I, what happens is when I listen to people who try to say that they love Jesus, but they're not that big on the church, I simply look at them and in my mind I say, you're a liar then. If you wonder, that's what I think of you. If you think you don't need the church and you're not that big on the church and the church is something that you, yeah, I can do or not. But I, 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 I think highly of Jesus. I follow Jesus. I'm just going to call you a liar. No, you can't. 
It's like a husband telling his wife, I really love your mind, but the rest of you I could do without. Try that on your wife and see what comes. You either love or you don't. But it's a package deal, right? It's a package deal. You don't get to love Jesus and then hate his body. You don't get to say, I want the head, I just don't want the body. I don't want it. They're full of hypocrites like you. And when you're that way, all you're doing is lying. You're, not only do you not love the people or love the church, which you might be willing to admit, but you don't love Jesus. That's the part that makes you a liar. No. When you're dragging people to church, when you're trying to guilt them into going to church, the problem with it is that almost always what you're really dealing with is an unregenerate person who's not of the church and part of the church, and therefore there is no desire to be with the church because they're not of the church, but they love Jesus. And you can feel free to actually look at them kindly, but call them what they are, a liar. You're a liar. As a pastor now, 26 years and counting, five years as a jail chaplain, do you have any idea how many excuses I've heard? I mean, over and over again. Pastor, pastor, Christ is Lord. He's Jesus Lord. Amen. Amen. Give me a testimony, somebody. Amen. And oh, yeah, we're all like that. And I'll get to church when I have time, when my anxiety is not so bad. When my son isn't playing traveling ball, when the fish aren't biting, when the salmon aren't running, when your head isn't hurting, when your kids aren't grumpy, and so on, and so on, and so on. I remember a guy that uh, I talked to, and I asked, hey, I didn't see a church. He was wanting me to disciple him. I said, you okay? And he's like, yeah, I was just real sleepy. I didn't get to bed until about two, and I was just tired. I'm like, oh, I preached a whole sermon oversaw the church, came back and preached an evening service. And you know what? I didn't get to bed until five in the morning. Well, that's your job. No, that's not. It's not it. You, you, you gather with the people because they're Christ people and they belong to Christ and you belong to Christ. And all of you are brothers and sisters because of that. And so when he confronts Saul, he is not saying, why are you hurting my church? He says, why are you hurting me? And so when you say, well, I, I'm sorry, I still don't agree. I'm, I'm going to just tell you this. If you say, I can ignore the church, even though I love Jesus, I would say, no. Jesus would say, why are you ignoring me? Why are you mocking me when you mock the church? And all the other things that go on in our head. You dismiss the church, you dismiss Christ. You disrespect the church, you disrespect Christ. You don't believe in the church, fine, but you don't believe in Jesus either. And no amount of you saying, yes, I do, will change that. It's kind of like when I talk to people who are saying, well, I don't know if they've repented or not. Somebody who's in sin, maybe been disciplined out of the church, and people will come to me all the time saying, well, I don't know what to do. Do you think they've repented? Well, I don't know. I think maybe... I'm like, then they haven't repented. (laughs) Because no one ever has to wonder if you've repented. Never, ever do you have to, gee, I'm not sure. 
In the same way, do they love the church? I, I, I don't know. Do they go to church? Well, when they can. Are they prevented from going to church? Well, no, but I mean, they got things to do. It's like, then they don't love the church and they don't love Christ. In fact, I would argue that there are people, even in this room, as I said this to the first service, there are some here who need to experience kind of a Damascus Road kind of confrontation like Saul, where you're on your way doing all of the things you're doing. You're already, you're already baiting the hook. You're already planning your retirement. You're already planning your next move in your corporate. You're already planning how you're going to go on the next vacation, whatever it is. You are going full bore down the things that you love. And then would you are smacked so hard with the presence of God that you're crushed and you're now lying in a heap on a road. And it doesn't matter. You don't care because this is the most important thing that's ever happened to you. And you didn't even realize that you needed it. That point where you're confronted with, in such an amazing way, the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. And you can't separate him from his church. So notice in verse 5, the, the words of Paul. Again, he's Saul here. Who are you, Lord? Now, now, why does he say that? Well, he says it because he's a Pharisee, and a Pharisee doesn't use that word, Lord, casually. It's a word he would use for God alone. He's not sure exactly who he is, but he's not also betting that it's not God. So who are you, Lord? He's going to verify this. This must have been an amazing event, must have been. Because for Saul, so many things radically shifted. What was in accordance to ignorance was now going to become accordance to knowledge. So what are some of the things that happened at this moment where he's like, I'm walking, I'm mad, I got my group of guys, we're going to go, we got our letters, we're ready, let's do it. And then boom, the next thing you know, there's this great light and Saul is lying in a heap. And then he starts talking. What's he seeing? Well, the first thing to change in that very moment was he realized that the very person he thought was a fraud named Jesus, the very one who was a threat to the glory of God was in fact no fraud at all. The second thing that happened was that when he saw the resurrected Jesus showing him well, when he saw Jesus as resurrected, because that's who he's looking at, is now the glory of the risen Lord. He realizes that all of the things that Jesus had taught, all the things that he said he was, were in fact true, or he wouldn't be there. God would not have raised him from the dead, but he can't, def he can't defend it. He's looking at him. In this vision, he is given the fullness of Jesus Christ, and here he is ready to go kill people who belong to Jesus Christ because they believe a fraud, because he's a fraud. Why? Because he died. And now he's looking at him, and he's not dead, and he's talking to him. And not only that, but he's saying, why are you poking me? Why are you persecuting me? And the risen Lord has his attention. He comes to realize that he's not the enemy. He was exactly whom he claimed to be. He was the Messiah. But he's not just seeing him as a resurrected 
being. He's not seeing him as the resurrected Christ. He's actually seeing him in his glory. Remember, there's his great light about him. And at that moment, his, uh, his humility had to have been shattered. This is really uh, another Isaiah chapter 6 experience. You guys know that one. Most of you do. On that day, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? He was on the throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. He's got these specialized angels called the seraphim, and, and they're strange looking. They have six wings. With two, he covers his face, two, he covers his feet, and two, he flew. And one of them called out to another as he flew around the throne room of God. They said, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of the hosts, meaning of the armies. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out. Imagine how terrifying it must be that this one angel, all he does is cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as he does, all of heaven shakes. And that's just an angel. And what does Isaiah do? Does he say, cool, I am going to take notes because this is going to be a bestseller. I tell you what, I could build a whole ministry around this. I can make bank on this. How I died and went to heaven and came back. It's what they do, right? In fact, they've done it. I got several books of people who claimed to have died and gone to heaven, saw Jesus. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, Yahweh. He says, woe is me because I'm ruined. That word woe, we cannot translate it into English properly. There's not a word for us. It is like you stepped into the middle of an atomic explosion and you're just undone, down to the atomic level. You're just gone. That's what happened to Isaiah. He's not up there thinking this is cool. He is shattered, absolutely shattered. It ruins him. It destroys him. So much so that he says, woe is me because I'm ruined I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a liar. And I live among a people who lie. That's the same thing that is happening to Paul. Why do I know that? Well, in John chapter 12, Jesus says that, he says, you know when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and he saw that glory, he was speaking of me. That's why I know. He was looking at the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He was looking at the Son of God and all of his glory. And all Isaiah could do was say, I'm dead. I'm done. In fact, in Matthew 7, there's a moment where Jesus took Peter and James and John up onto a mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. It says that he transfigured. Then in a sense, he kind of pulled back his humility as a human and his humble position and says that he shone about with an exceedingly great bright light. And I remember when I was in Greek class translating that passage, and it was interesting how in the Greek, they just kept piling the words up. To, to tell you, this is brighter than bright, lighter than light, bigger than big. 
And here's Jesus, and he's, here he is. He's been eating with them, sleeping with them, talking with them all these years. Now he takes them up on there, and he peels himself back in a sense. And now they see him in his glory that he's hidden. And do they get excited? No. You know what it says? They were terrified. Terrified. For Paul, there was this massive theological shift here in Romans, I mean, Acts 9, that changed everything. He saw that the new age of the reign of God had already come, that Jesus was, in fact, the king, and the church was his people. Notice in verse 6, the very first thing that God does or Jesus does to him is commands him. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He doesn't say, believe in me. Because he's no longer debating who he is. He's been confronted by him. He knows who Jesus is now. So now as his Lord, what does he do? He commands him. And this is always his way. The first thing he says is rise up, enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. No more information. He confronts him. He now knows who he is. And now he says, go to this city and wait for me and I'll get get to you when I'm ready, basically. I told the first service about when I was in the police academy. I don't know what I did. doesn't ever matter when you're in the academy. I, I assume basic training is the same way. They're going to make you get in trouble just because that's what they feel like doing. But I did something wrong, and I got yelled at by my drill sergeant. I was ordered to go stand at attention with my nose touching the wall, and I had to stand in the corner. And he said, and I'll get to you when I'm ready. And I'm in my 30s, and I'm thinking, okay. <laughs> but I actually had the thing, it's like, I, I, I don't have time for this. That's something you do to your five-year-old. No, that's what a drill sergeant does when he's in a bad mood and you do something stupid. And so I'm standing there at attention, and the, the rest of the academy class, they have to pretend you're not there. So they will not acknowledge you, and, and you're not allowed to acknowledge them. You're just standing like an absolute idiot with your stupid nose stuck to the wall, because Lord help you if you take it off, because that's the moment the sergeant will show up. And finally, after about an hour, he comes to me. And I swear he forgot about me. But it didn't matter. My job was only one. Go stand in that corner, stick your nose on the wall, and wait for me. And I did for one hour. So any of you ever get whiny with me, and you start saying, well, I don't know why I got to do that. You tell them, shut up and do it, because I'm your mom. I'm your dad, or I'm whoever. That's, that's just what Jesus said to him. It's nothing exciting. Not anything in this is crazy, is it? He just says... Now that you know who I am, I want you to go to this city, enter it, and wait, and I'll get to you. This is always the way of true salvation, true conversion, is the moment you come to faith, the first thing you're thinking is, what must I do? And the first thing you begin to do is want to obey, but you find out that right away there's that command, be baptized. Be baptized right away, you've got that. Well, it's similar to this. He says, what am I supposed to do? Though he doesn't actually say that out by acknowledging him as Lord. He says, you go here and wait for me. You're never saved by obeying the commands, but it is a mark of one who has been saved is that you're not going to argue. This is a life-changing moment. In verse 7, then, I want you to note that not everyone there was saved. Paul was saved. 
Saul again. Not because of his innate goodness, but because, as verse 15 says, God chose him. He was his chosen vessel. But he's got companions, and they don't get to hear it. They hear the voice, but they don't know really what's going on. They can't understand. They don't get to see the risen Lord. God was pleased to give that sight and that salvation to one man and only one man on that road. And the rest of these companions we know nothing more about. There's no indication that they came to faith or anything else. All they know is the guy that they're following, and he's going to help them, and we're going to go get those stupid Christians. He's now lying on the ground, mumbling to himself, and they're not sure what's going on. God, in his sovereignty, chose not to give them the words of Jesus. They were chosen by God's sovereignty to not be part of Jesus' saving work in Paul's life. They were not chosen instruments. So they're afraid, they're speechless, they're confused, but they're not converted. Maybe later they were. We don't have any more discussion. We have no knowledge, but not now. At this point, there's only one person that God is dealing with, and that's Saul. And then finally, in verses 8 and 9, we see the initial cost of being confronted and converted. He's blind. So he's like, get up, go. His men, they're speechless. They can hear the voice, but they can't see anyone. Later on, we hear that they heard a voice, but they didn't even know it was a voice. It was just this loud noise. Saul gets up from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he could see nothing. They're his companions. They don't know what's going on, but they're faithful companions. They take him by the hand, and now he has to walk the rest of the way to Damascus, and he has no idea where, who, who, where, where he's going. He can't see anything. This is such a major thing. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink for three days. You can imagine. Everything that Saul believed had just been shattered. This is a man who literally went from breathing threats to kill and murder Christians to now being a meek and mild blind guy being led by others. And in this time of blindness, all that would probably play out in his mind, I mean, I can't prove this, I'm thinking, if I was walking along and I was going to go kill this people called the Missio Deiites, and I'm walking along, and all of a sudden I'm on the ground blinded, but I can still see the risen Lord, and he's asked me why I'm persecuting him and not them, and all of that, I think that for the next few days while I'm blind, I would think a lot about what just happened. I think it broke him in a very wonderful way, but I I want you to understand it broke him. Some of you here, I pray, will learn this. For some of you, very easily, you could still be posturing before us. You're trying to prove to yourself and others that you're this or that, and it's it's all a fraud, and we, you know it. And maybe some people suspect it with you. But it's all a fraud. You're just playing the game. You have not yet been laid bare. You've not yet been brought to that point where the only thing you have is the glory of God in your absolute humiliation. I'm not even saying that as a Christian that I'm saying Christians have not yet sometimes come to that point. 
It's a brutal moment. I've had it happen <clears throat> on a few occasions where you just, you're left with nothing. And all you see is that you are nothing. And then you realize God is everything. And it's enough. It's just enough. But it's only when God is pleased to confront you with who he is. And so that's where we leave our passage today. We leave our passage with these thoughts. You have a proud religious man who utterly gets destroyed in this one single moment by the vision of the risen Lord. That It just destroys him. You watch a, here a man plucked out of life of rebellion, though he didn't think he was rebelling, and he's now converted to become a useful instrument in the hands of his Savior. And we also have here the kindness and the severity of God. And you have to learn to be content with both. All of us like it when God's kind to you, right? Oh, you love that. God is so good to me. My baby's healthy. My job is good. My husband loves me. My, my whatever. God is so good. But I have sat with so many people in this church over the years when the word cancer or rebellion or divorce or Whatever it is, is uttered in the words, and, and life as you know it is gone. And I've had people shake with rage, saying, where is God in all of this? Where is God? You see, when, when, you, wait, when you get up out of here and you go home and everything's working and you get there safely, oh yeah, you're, you're praising Jesus. Thank you for this lovely day. But when you find out that your husband's not everything that you thought he was or your wife is not everything you thought she was, even though the Bible told you she was a wretched sinner and your husband is just as wretched apart from God's grace, or when you find this out that a guy has stolen a Kia in Milwaukee and is now racing through the streets of Racine and you go through an intersection following all the laws of man because you're a good and righteous man and and this guy creams you as he's blowing through it, and he kills your beloved son? Do you accept the severity of God? See, that's what's going on here. What you have is you have both the kindness of God in saving this man, but not everyone gets saved. But you also see God crushing this man, crushing him, absolutely devastating him and bringing them to the end of himself. And that's you. Some of you guys, that's where you're at. And that's my prayer. You, you, I, I tell people, I don't think most want to know how I pray for my church because you wouldn't like me. How often have I prayed that God would just bring you to an end of yourself where you're just confronted with who you are and you realize I'll never make it. And that's where I have hope. When you finally say, I'll never make it, I'll never make it to heaven, I'll never make it. You're right, you won't. Jesus did it. That's why you have Jesus. Keep Jesus. He brought you into this because he becomes your Lord, but he first became your sin bearer. Well, let's pray. So, Father, help us. Help us as we go home. Help us to think about that. We don't even know what you're going to do this week. We have no idea if you're going to bring us to the end of ourselves in that way. We're already assuming that we have another week to live and another week to do the things that we really love to do, and yet we do not know what you have ordained.
So let us even now commit ourselves to call you Lord, to know what it is that you would have us to be and to do, and to walk by faith in obedience, and that we in all of that would bring you much glory, that we would not be afraid to speak to others of this gospel because we are convinced that it alone will bring them to salvation. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.